This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 29, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The death of Freddie Gray at the hands of Baltimore police is bringing into clearer focus the need for reforms to police forces in the United States. But fixing how cops do their jobs won't be enough. At a recent Capitol Hill briefing, the Cato Institute's Tim Lynch also argued for an end to the American war on drugs. Freddie Gray lost his life in a horrifying set of circumstances. Uh, The authorities tell us that Freddie was handcuffed and he was put into the back of a police van, but the police officers did not uh, put him in a seatbelt. So with his hands handcuffed behind his back, uh, he was not able to brace himself as the police van moved along uh, around the city. And as he pleaded for medical help, again, the authorities tell us that the officers who were responsible for him uh, ignored his pleas. Uh, A medical examiner later reported that Freddie's spine was snapped. Uh, He fell into a coma uh, uh, for a week, and then he died as a result of those injuries. The protests that we saw in Ferguson last summer and the protests in Baltimore uh, that started after Freddie's case came to light has started a long overdue discussion of poverty and policing, especially in our cities. My remarks are gonna focus on police tactics and police misconduct and the criminal justice system more generally. At the Cato Institute, we started an initiative three years ago that we call the National Police Misconduct Reporting Project, and you can find that on the web at policemisconduct.net. Each day we gather together misconduct incidents from around the country and One of our purposes is to draw more attention to the problem of police misconduct and also to develop policies that can reduce the number of incidents and bring accountability to those who abuse their power. Now, sometimes people ask me, well, isn't everyone by definition already against police misconduct? And my response is that, well, on one level, yes. Uh, No one defends police brutality or illegal searches But people do disagree on, they do not always agree on what constitutes police misconduct. People do not always agree on the scope of the problem. And people do not always agree on what to do about it. After studying the problem of police misconduct for several years, it is apparent that the problem is worse than many people realize. We're not just talking about, you know, the proverbial (coughs) few bad apples. The Department of Justice is now investigating the Baltimore Police Department for what it calls a pattern and practice of constitutional violations. These federal investigations have been conducted before. Uh, We've seen Department of Justice investigators go into departments in New Orleans, Philadelphia, Seattle, Miami, Oakland, uh, and many other cities, but it's begun to get more prominence since they moved into the Ferguson Police Department last year and issued their scathing report uh, about that department. And what usually happens is there's a familiar pattern that is found over and over again in these large uh, big city uh, police departments and some of the mid-sized departments that they've gone into. What they find is that prosecutions for misconduct are rare, disciplinary procedures are often secret and not very serious, they tend to be very tilted Uh, towards the officer and against the complaining citizen. 
Civilian review boards are understaffed and have very little impact on the police department and their policies. They do find lawsuits and settlements uh, for, you know, lawsuits for police brutality that are brought against the city. But what happens in these cases is usually the taxpayers end up paying for the jury verdicts and, and awards. And the culpable officers who juries have found that <coughs> overstepped the line and broke the law, these officers are not held accountable and disciplined when these jury verdicts come in. Sometimes they're not just not disciplined, sometimes they're even promoted. Not because of what they did, but because there's just no feedback loop between what a jury finds in a lawsuit and the other work that that officer is involved in. Now I'm gonna hazard a guess uh, and say that in a few months, the Department of Justice is going to issue a report on the Baltimore Department and they are gonna find a pattern and practice of problems there. Because we really already know those problems exist. The Baltimore Sun did an extensive expose on the department and all of the uh, police misconduct lawsuits that have been brought against that city over the years. So I expect in whatever, seven months, eight months, a year, the Department of Justice is gonna issue another scathing report finding many of these common problems with um, the Baltimore Department. And they will issue a series of recommendations. And then the mayor of Baltimore and uh, the police chief there will pledge that they will move on these recommendations to get the department on a better track. We've seen this before. And a few days ago, I should also mention that the White House Task Force on Policing uh, they uh, issued a report just a few days ago that contained dozens and dozens of recommendations to improve policing and race relations. But I'm afraid the reforms that we see, uh, reforms calling for more police training, more data collection, uh, more transparency in, in the police departments, uh, these, these proposals are good, but they really talk around uh, a basic problem. So even if they are implemented in good faith by police officials in the cities, we're not gonna see uh, anything more than improvements at the margins. If we wanna get dramatic improvement from our current situation, we have to reconsider our, our policies relating to drugs, uh, as Peter mentioned at the outset. The drug war has been going on now for some 40 years and uh, it has been a failure. Uh, the war policy has not stopped drugs from coming into the country. The drug war has not stopped people from using drugs. And uh, the war policy has not kept drugs away from our schools. Each year, the government spends billions of dollars on the war effort, but it cannot even keep drugs out of our penitentiaries. And it's bad enough that we're pouring a lot of money into a policy that is not working, but it's actually worse than that. The policy is counterproductive. It is creating more problems than it is solving. And one of these problems concerns the relationship between young minority men and the police. During the days of alcohol prohibition, there was a thriving underground market to supply liquor to those who wanted it. Today, we have a thriving underground market to supply narcotics to the people who want to use it. And it's no secret that young minority men in our cities, in the poor neighborhoods, are tempted to make some cash selling drugs. They are disproportionately a part of the trade that sell drugs out into the open. 
and this underground market created by our drug policies is standing out there and it's telling these young men that, yeah, even if you drop out of school, there's still going to be an opportunity to go make some cash. Unfortunately, it's one of the only ways in which many of these people can make cash because they are in poor neighborhoods. You do not have the skills uh, from the schools that are failing them. And this is standing out there as an opportunity to make a quick buck. <clears throat> now, you combine that situation with what the, we ask the police to do. The police are tasked with waging the war policy. They are told to go out and make drug busts. And the police are often evaluated by the number of arrests that they make and the, and, uh, the, the drugs that they seize. So we have this powerful dynamic at work where the police are constantly clashing with young minority men in our cities. So many of the stops and searches in the streets of our cities, are, they're not about burglary investigations. They're not about rape investigations. They're about trying to make drug busts. There is a marijuana arrest in the United States every minute, 24-7, all year long. And that's just marijuana. And behind every arrest, there are dozens and dozens of searches stops and raids that go on. Now, I have to lay that kind of background before we can you know, discuss some of the proposals that have been put forward. One of the president's proposals is called My Brother's Keeper, and it's designed to men help mentor young minority men. We also have proposals to collect more information from the police departments about, about their stops, about uh, uh, you know, the persons are stopped, how long the stop took place, whether any drugs were seized, collect more information from the police. We also have the popular proposal to uh, spend more money on body cameras, which Matt Feeney is going to be talking about in, in a few minutes. Uh, these ideas are, you know, there's some merit to them, but they're only going to bring us some small, marginal improvement from where we are right now. If we want to take some intermediate steps to try to get some better results, the police departments can scale back on the stop and frisk tactics that the police have been using in minority neighborhoods. Uh, these are tactics where the police uh, stop people, pedestrians out on the street uh, when they suspect that there's some criminal activity afoot and they will stop and often frisk people uh, down to see if they have any drugs or weapons on, on their persons. In New York City, now these are tactics that would never be tolerated in the suburbs. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends complain about police searches or TSA searches at airports. Um, now, if you can imagine, at least when you're going to an airport, you can kind of prepare yourself. You know, you're going to be going through that. But if you can imagine, you know, this stuff happening in your everyday life, like when you want to go to work, go see a friend, go to a movie, and you're stopped by the police, detained and frisked, you can begin to get an idea of what life is like for young minority men in the cities. In New York City, uh, between 2004 and 2012, there have been 4.5 million stops. And what's interesting, that this is from a federal case when this was, was challenged in federal court, and the judge found that 
of these 4.4 million stops, in nearly 90% of the cases, there was no uh, summons given or no arrest. Now remember, in order to make a stop legal, uh, the police say that they had a pretty good reason for stopping somebody because they thought criminal activity was afoot. And yet what the judge found and what was undisputed by the, the litigants was that in nearly 90% of the cases, there was no summons and there was no arrest. So they stopped somebody, detained them, may have frisked that person, and nothing happened. Um, it kind of is a window into this realm where the police, their incentive is to stop people, to try to find drugs. Uh, they're not purposely... Uh, trying to harass people, but they're they're evaluated by uh, you know the number of arrests that they make, and yet they're were to they're told in court that they had a good reason for stopping somebody, and yet ninety percent of the cases, nearly ninety percent, it turns out that they were wrong. Whatever their hunch was that somebody was involved in criminal activity turned out not to be the case. Otherwise, there would have been a summons or or an arrest. This is happening right here in the Washington D.C. as well. Um, we have conservative judges here on the Court of Appeals, uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, for example. She's written eloquently about this, about how uh, young minority men are treated differently, that if the police had stopped uh, several people in business attire, uh, hanging out outside of a Starbucks, uh, we don't seem to see that type of thing happen. And yet, when it comes to the poorer people who live in a different part of town, the police rush up detain these people and subject them to frisks. And she says this, this creates uh, a lot of problems, treats people differently, <coughs> and pits the residents of minority neighborhoods against the police department in a pitched battle. It's why we have this rising resentment in so many of our cities. Uh, these are the people coming out to protest uh, when uh, things uh, go so far as when somebody is actually killed, um, like a Freddie Gray. Mayor uh, uh, de Blasio in New York City has begun to scale back on stop and frisk tactics in that city. So that is one thing uh, uh, leaders in other cities can do. These stop and frisk tactics um, create a lot of resentment in our cities and, and they're really uh, misguided. Another thing that we can do is stop the flow of weaponry from the Pentagon to local police departments. President Obama spoke a little bit about this on Monday. When the police roll into these neighborhoods, in armored vehicles, dressed in camouflage, wearing helmets with military-type weaponry. Uh, there are these violent raids on people's homes and apartments. We have a, a map on the Cato Institute website. We call it the raid map, where we kind of track uh, a lot of these violent paramilitary raids on, on people's homes, apartments, and in public housing. Um, you know, when these units roll into a neighborhood, you know, constitutional rights are too often trampled, people get hurt, and uh, more generally, even if you're not the subject of the search, if it's your next-door neighbor, people begin to view the police not as, you know, a force that's helping them solve problems, but as an occupying force uh, coming in. Instead of, you know, we used to refer to police officers as peace officers. They were there to respond to a disturbance and restore the peace. But these days, they are too often rolling into neighborhoods in the middle of the night or earlier in the morning, conducting a violent raid, and they're actually uh, creating the disturbance. So that is another problem uh, that we need to uh, reverse. 
Another thing that we can take a look at is re-examine the red tape that uh, too many police unions have put in place uh, with respect to uh, employment practices for police officers. There's too much red tape in place that makes it almost impossible sometimes to get rid of a bad police officer. Some police chiefs will tell you that they know who the bad apples are right now, but it's almost impossible to get them off of the force because of the red tape that's involved. Uh, our friends on the right see this problem in the education context where it's hard to get rid of bad teachers <coughs> because of uh, union contracts, uh, but the same problem uh, exists with respect to police departments. But again, if we want intermediate steps, we're gonna get intermediate results. Since I'm almost out of time, let me stress once again, if we wanna see dramatic improvements, we have to bring the drug war to an end the same way we, we brought the mistaken policy of alcohol prohibition to an end. And this is not to say that all our problems are gonna go away. Uh, the problems of police misconduct and corruption uh, are really always gonna be with us, but we can see significant improvements in these areas if we were to uh, bring the drug war to an end. And at Cato, we have also studied the policies of other countries such as Portugal, which decriminalized all drugs in 2001. And one of the primary objections we used to hear was that if we were to end the drug war, we'd see a spike in drug use and we'd have a public health crisis and it would be too late to turn back. It turns out if you study what has happened in Portugal, that did not happen. Uh, drug use is, uh, uh, it, there was no spike uh, and that the policy has been in that place for in that country for many years and there's no effort to say oh my gosh we made a mistake we need to reverse that in fact other countries are beginning to look at Portugal and study what they're doing there and are moving in that direction we should let the police focus on violent crime and let health officials focus on the problems associated with drug abuse Tim Lynch directs the Cato Institute's project on criminal justice read more of his work at Cato.org